continuing our series of Tell Me the Story of Jesus, um, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11 this morning, as Jesus is going to give a lesson on prayer. <clears throat> and it's going to sound like a pretty familiar passage, because um, part of it we actually looked at already back in 2022. And the focus again this morning is a lesson on prayer. And portions of what Jesus teaches here in our passage in verses 1 through 13 can be found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and part of it in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew's recording, Jesus is teaching to the crowds. We don't know how many, but there are people just gathered around in what is known as Sermon on the Mount. But here in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is teaching directly to his disciples because they came to him with a request to instruct them on how to pray. Now, no doubt throughout Jesus' ministry that he had taught similar, if not the same, messages and parables as he traveled around the nation of Israel. He would be seeing different types of people. And I believe he did this because it wasn't a lack of content that Jesus had, but his goal was so that the people could know God and so that the people could understand the kingdom of God. And so when we look through the Gospels, I can find several times where the disciples come to Jesus with a particular question. They once asked him about the meaning of parables and why did he choose to teach in parables to the people. They, Peter once asked Jesus to state his identity as they saw Jesus walking on the water and Peter wanted to come out to meet him. When Jesus and the disciples came across the blind man, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, well, why is he the way he is? Is it because of his sins or is it because of his parents' sins? When Jesus was rejected in a city, two of his disciples came to him and asked him, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? When Jesus spoke about the end times, and when the temple would be destroyed in Jerusalem, and the end of days, disciples came to Jesus and said, can you tell us when this is going to happen? On the last night, when Jesus was with the disciples in the upper room, and he let them know that there was one among them that was going to betray him, John leaned over and asked, who is it? Now, of all the miracles that Jesus did, and all the ministries he did, all the spiritual disciplines he practiced. When it comes to prayer, this is the one thing the disciples came to him and asked for instruction on. And so what's interesting about their request is the disciples would have been praying individuals. They were Jewish men. So they would have prayed two to three times a day. It would have been a common practice for them. Yet here in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, we find them coming to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw something different in his prayer life that they didn't have in their own. Richard Foster, in his book Celebration of Discipline, wrote, Real prayer is something we learn. Disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. They had prayed all their lives. And yet something about the quality and quantity of Jesus' prayer caused them to see how little they knew about prayer. If their praying was to make a difference on the human scene, there were some things they were going to need to learn. Obviously, 
They saw something in Jesus' prayer life that they were not experiencing in their own. When Jesus ascends to the heavens after his resurrection, we find in the book of Acts that prayer would be a pivotal practice of the first century church. Acts lets us know that the first generation of Christians gathered daily to pray. Now, originally, when I came to this particular passage and knowing that we had dealt with some of the content in, in a couple years ago, I thought, well, well, we'll just skip over it. We'll just move on to the next and, and, and we'll deal with what, what else is happening within the gospel. But then I thought, if, if this is something that the 12 closest men to Jesus, the disciples, came to him specifically to ask about, then we need to stop and see what he does in instructing them about prayer. Because prayer impacted the first generation of believers so much, and we have to understand it. We have to know how do we apply these things into our life so that our prayer life can be something that Jesus instructs us and the disciples saw in his own. So let's read our passage, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, and we're going to work our way through verse 13. And the word of the Lord says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Verse 5, And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his sons ask for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? As I already mentioned, this part of these passages that we read can be found in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in verses 2 through 4 and verses 9 through 11. Both of those passages are found in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is located in Matthew chapter chapter 5 through chapter 7. Now, there are some differences here. In Matthew's recording of the Lord's Prayer... After your kingdom come, Matthew has the insertion of your will be done. Also in Matthew, after lead us not into temptation, Matthew inserts, but deliver us from evil. Matthew also adds a teaching about forgiveness concerning prayer, which isn't recorded here in the Gospel of Luke. And the final difference when we look at the Lord's Prayer here in Luke is Luke uses the word sins, which some versions may have that in Matthew, but Matthew's word actually reads as debts. Now concerning verses 9 through 11, 
which is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. The wording is almost verbatim, except for the egg and scorpion part. In Matthew, it's recorded as bread and stone. Matthew does finish up the teaching about asking and seeking and knocking, similar to the fashion we, or what we find here in Luke, except here in the Gospel of Luke, the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit. And Luke does this because he is setting up the book of Acts, which he is also going to write. And so we might come here and we might be flipping back and forth between Matthew and Luke and say, okay, why are there differences? And I believe the answer is because what I've already stated, that we have two different settings here. We have two different scenarios in which Jesus is teaching. And Matthew, again, he's teaching to a large crowd of people. Here in the Gospel of Luke, he's teaching directly to his disciples. In Matthew's account of the teaching, it would have been at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So it would have been a time where the disciples are, are trying to figure Jesus out. They haven't gotten to the place where they understand him to be the Son of God or the Messiah or the Christ. They're simply at a place where they know that he is a great teacher and they're willing to follow him. But when we come here to the Gospel of Luke here in chapter 11, we are nearing the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And disciples have already received the revelation that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, even if they didn't fully understand the implications of what that meant for their own life and what was going to happen down the road. But it reveals here the human nature of the disciples for us. And I think we can all relate to this request. There are times in our life at least there have been in mine, where we hear the instructions from the Word of God, but don't fully understand it. Would you agree with that? And then as we get later in life, maybe we come to a different season of life, or we've gotten to a deeper growth in our relationship with God, we come back to a passage, and it's like our eyes and our mind and our heart have finally been open to receive what is being said. I hope every believer has this moment in their life when they're reading and they're studying the Bible and they come to a passage that they've read maybe hundreds of times before, but God just finally reveals the meaning of it and you look at it like, when did that get there? I hope you've been to that place. When, when did that verse get there? I've read this numerous times, but now it's just like leaping off the page. And what that means is that you're growing in a deeper understanding of God, in a deeper understanding of His Word, and your heart has been grown to become more receptive to His truth. And He's moving. Now, our passage, we aren't told where this location is. It simply says he was praying in a certain place. Now, since we haven't been in this series for quite a while, you'd have to go back into chapter 10 to look at where Jesus was before this place. And he was in a village of Bethany, even though Luke doesn't tell us that, but we can know that from other passages of Scripture, visiting with Mary and Martha. And so it would not be far-fetched that this particular event takes place somewhere around Bethany. It would not be far-fetched if this instruction on prayer happens somewhere close to this location or if not back in this location. We know from the Gospels when we read through it that Jesus made a practice when he prayed, he would get away. 
He would go to a place of solitude. He would get away from the crowds. He would even leave his disciples at, some t- at times where they had to go searching for him. Where did he go? Where is he doing? The people were looking for him, but he was out praying. Now, just because Jesus made a practice of getting alone to pray, to be in the presence of God, to have communion with him, it seems here in chapter 11 that the disciples were at least in eyesight of him. Maybe they were even in listening distance. There in verse 1, or verse one where it talks about John, it's referring to John the Baptist. Again, when we use the Gospels as a reminder, we know at least two of Jesus' disciples were originally disciples to John the Baptist. So even though John may have taught his or must have taught his disciples how to pray, John's ministry as a reminder was to prepare the way for the Lord. And so I doubt this was John's prayer because Jesus doesn't copy people. He, he has his own method of prayer that he's teaching. And there are some people today that believe when it comes to the Lord's prayer, this is the only prayer you should pray. Well, which one are you going to pray? The one in Luke 11 or the one in Matthew 6? Because they're a little bit different. But the Bible does not back that up. When we look at Jesus, when we look at the disciples, when we look at the early believers and we have the recordings of their prayers, they aren't always praying this. Matter of fact, this is the only time it's recorded that they do pray this or Jesus teaches to pray this way. So there are other ways to pray so we can conclude when we come to the Lord's Prayer, this isn't something Jesus is giving us to say, okay, you have to do this word by word. You have to do this verbatim because Prayer life isn't to be an act of just going through the motions. It's not just to have something memorized and be able to recite it. Rather, the Lord's Prayer gives us a roadmap on how to pray. And we can come to this conclusion again because the prayers in the New Testament by Jesus and disciples and the apostles and the early believers, they didn't pray this. They didn't pray this word for word. So the focus of the Lord's prayer is on how to pray. And there are three things we see here in the Lord's prayer on how to pray. The first thing is prayer calls for reliance on God. The second thing is prayer calls us to focus on God. And the third thing is prayer calls us to action. And I think sometimes we don't think about prayer that way. But let's walk through this real quick. The bulk of the Lord's Prayer, if you read through it here in Luke or in Matthew, it's focused on God. Here again, it is focused on God. And that truth alone may impact our prayer lives today. Because a lot of times, confession, my prayers can be focused on Mike. What does Mike want? What does Mike need? What does Mike want to see happen? Not that Mike, this Mike. <laughs> but the prayer is focused on God. It starts out, Father. And as a reminder from back in 2022, I mean, I know you all remember every sermon I've ever preached, but as a reminder back from 2022, we can't call God our Father unless Jesus is our Savior. Prayer is built upon a relationship with God that is only found through Jesus Christ. And then it focuses on God's name. Hallowed. The word can be read as honored or holy. 
And when it comes to focusing on the name of God or the names of God, what that is calling us in prayer is we are to focus on God's character and God's attributes, who he is. And the way we know God's character and we know his attributes is found in his names, which is revealed through his scripture. Therefore, when we come to pray, we not only need to know God as our Father through Jesus Christ, but we need to know how, how has God revealed himself through his word? What are the names of God? What are the attributes of God? And if you need help with that, then I would just encourage you, just start in the book of Psalms. And you'll see names and characteristics and attributes of God in the book of Psalms. And you'll be like, okay, that's how I should start praying. When I come before God, I should start with my focus on who he is, not on what I think I need or what I even want. The phrase daily bread is to speak of necessities, not wants. Next, it moves to asking God to forgive us. And though when we come to Christ, when we place our faith in him, the Bible says our sins are moved apart from us as far as the east is from the west, that God no longer sees us in our sin. He sees us in the full righteousness of Christ. There's not a person sitting in this room or standing in this room who still does not wrestle with sin or the sinful nature. And so we come before God and we say, God, forgive us for our sins, for our shortcomings, for our debts. And then this leads us to the action part. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And so since God has forgiven us, it means that we are now to become forgivers. And it's at this point in Matthew, he adds a little further instruction, not here in Luke, but in Matthew, in chapter 6, concerning forgiveness. That Jesus taught. And he says that, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I just want to throw a little reminder out here. Because we have this misconception about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not forgive and forget. It's not. It is impossible for us to forgive and forget. Because you'll have something that will happen, someone will come into your life that will remind you of something in the past and it will just spark something in your head. So forgiveness is not forgive and forget. Here's what forgiveness is. When we forgive others, we're letting it go. We're not going to hold it against them. We're not going to have ill feelings toward them. We're not going to seek revenge. We're just going to let it go. We're going to wipe their debt clean. And we still may wrestle. That's why we have to pray to God, Lord, forgive us our sins. Forgive us this wrestling match that we're having, this grudge we are holding. Help us to be a forgiver as you have forgiven us. Matthew 18. Peter asks one of his great questions. Concerning forgiveness. He comes to Jesus and he says, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive them? Because Jesus had just taught on forgiveness and he's going to follow it with a parable about forgiveness. Peter basically comes to Jesus, and we got to love Peter because he's a lot like us. He comes to Jesus and says, When's the cutoff? When's enough enough? When can I stop? 
And so Jesus delivers an answer, which we'll have to unpack here. He says 77 times, and it's, it's, it's in different versions. It's read a little bit differently. The point of Jesus' answer, which he elaborates in the parable that follows, is that when, when we forgive somebody, we aren't to keep a tally on them. We aren't to say, okay, I got to 77. That's it. You're done. Because if we keep a tally on how many times we're going to forgive somebody, then guess what? You actually haven't forgiven them. You're still holding it against them. You still have ill will. And so the, the answer wasn't so Peter and we were like, okay, good. Now, now I can just start you know, counting how many times. And then the final part of the instruction on prayer seems weird when he says, and lead us not into temptation. And the reason that seems a weird part of the prayer, because in, in the book of James, in chapter 1, we are specifically told that God does not tempt us. So why would we pray to God to lead us not into temptation? Well, the real reading from the Greek should be, don't let us yield to temptation. And so this part of the prayer is asking God to give us the strength not to fall into the temptations that come, which lead us into sin. Timothy Keller wrote in his book titled Prayer that one of the purposes of prayer is to bring our hearts to trust in his wisdom and not our own. It is to leave all our needs and desires in his hands in a way that is possible only through prayer. Let's move on to verses 5 through 8. These verses are unique to Luke. They're not found in any other gospel. They're unique to this particular teaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples. And it's pretty much what we would call a short parable. It's about an individual having a friend that arrives late at night. Jesus says it's midnight. And the host does not have the proper means to show hospitality to their friend that has just arrived. So in return, the host decides he's going to go to his neighbor or his other friend and ask for some bread. It, hospitality within the Jewish community was incredibly important. And so if you did not show hospitality, particularly to a friend, what it did within the Jewish community is it revealed the heart of the individual and the spirituality of those who lived in the house. So unfortunately, this friend goes out, it's late, he goes and knock on, knocks on his friend's door, he asks for this bread, but his other friend didn't want to be bothered, because he and his family had already tucked in for the night, they'd already gone to bed, the kids were asleep. And I can completely relate to the friend that's in the house. If you came to my house at midnight and knocked on the door, the first thing I would do is call the cops. Sorry, I'm not even going to look out the window. It's like someone's banging on our door. If you called me at midnight, I'm not a night person. I, I like to, to wake up kind of early, except on certain days where I force myself to stay in bed. But if you called me at midnight and you just wanted to talk, it's going to be a very brief conversation. So I'll, I'll call you at 6 when I wake up. Or if you had an emergency, we would, we would talk about it, and we would pray about it, and I would understand that. But if you called me or came to my house at midnight because you had guests showing up and you wanted a cup of sugar, this is probably what I would tell you. Go to bed. Get the sugar in the morning. 
Everyone needs to sleep. When we come back to this parable, this, this brief little parable that Jesus gives, the implication there in verse 8 is that the friend kept knocking. He kept begging. He kept crying out for his other buddy to get out of bed and bring him some bread. And the key word from the ESV, I don't know what yours says, is the word impudence in verse 8. And that word in the Greek means this, shamelessly bold, shamelessly persistent, with a shameless audacity or a disregard for strength. And we have to keep in mind, Jesus is talking about prayer. And so we have to understand this, this instruction he's given us is the persistence of prayer. Michael Catt, who used to be the former pastor of Shorewood Baptist Church, he's passed away now, but uh, that's the church that produced movies like Fireproof and Courageous. He writes this, The reason we need to be persistent in prayer is not because God is reluctant, but because we tend to be lazy in praying. And this is a lesson that I need to learn in my life. When I began thinking about this sermon this morning and then looking back about when have I been persistent in prayer, it's typically when I want something really bad. Or something's going incredibly wrong and I want God to fix it. Or I feel that I need something. But the instruction that Jesus gives us here about prayer is our prayer life should be persistently seeking the Father and seeking His provisions for our life. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul was led to give these instructions. Pray without ceasing. And that means a constant mindset of prayer, a continual and personal fellowship with God, an understanding of being in God's presence throughout the entire day, every day. The Greek word which we read without ceasing means continuously and non-stopping. Pray without ceasing. I, I talk to God throughout the day. Um, I'm sure when some people pull up beside me in the car, they think I'm crazy because I'll, I'll talk out loud. I usually turn the radio down and just talk with him. I do my very best throughout the day to listen to him. But when I read that word impudence and understand what it means, I can honestly say that persistence and continuously are not things that I personally would use to define my prayer life. We should be praying when we drive to work. Praying for the individuals that you're going to have brought into your life while you're at work. Praying for your co-workers. Praying for your, your, your work atmosphere. We should be praying we're having conversations with people. And I don't mean like to be rude and like interrupt the conversation and just like, oh, hold on a second, you know. You can talk to God in your head. You have other voices in your head, so you can talk to God in your head, right? And pray while you're in conversations with people. Pray while you're in groups of people. Pray that God would open the door in that conversation or in that scenario that you can share the gospel. If you have kids or grandkids, you should be praying for them while they're at school. 
One reason we should pray for our kids, even if you don't have kids, look around. There's kids in here. Just If you don't know them, go ask their name. Introduce yourself. America's schools are the largest mission field in this nation right now. Another reason you should pray while they're at school is even though we have a great school system, and I'm sure if you don't go to Stratford, but you go to another school, it's a great school system. We have to understand that Satan has crept into the halls and the classrooms of the school. There are students in our school here, for example, that are wrestling with identity. There are students who are struggling because they're believing the lies of the enemy. They're involved in activities they shouldn't be involved in. They're questioning whether they're a human being or an animal. They're in relationships they shouldn't have. We have kids and grandkids and students in this very room right now that step into the school and step into a spiritual battle. And we need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for our finances. Not that God would give us more, but that he help us be good stewards and managers of what he's already provided. We need to be praying for our nation, praying for our family, praying for people's health, surgeries that are going to happen. Pray for the church family. Pray for ministry opportunities. We haven't tapped them out yet. Pray for activities that are coming up that are going to allow you to grow in your relationship with God. Those events, I know we have that sweetheart banquet coming up. Pray for that because there are people that show up to that that don't show up on Sunday mornings. Pray for those interactions that they're going to be around other believers like, wow, they're not out of their mind. They're not crazy. Pray for our leaders, as Dave mentioned. Pray for our president. I don't, I don't care if you like him or not. Pray for him. We're called to pray for him. Pray for our political leaders. I say this because the list is endless. And if you're like, well, I don't know, how, how do I pray without ceasing? I don't know what to pray about. Then turn the news on, and God will give you a ton of stuff to pray for. We are to be people of prayer. Going on to verses 9 through 11. These verses are also found in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. And there's some minor exceptions which we've already dealt with. And though I read the words, and it's read this way in Matthew as well, you ask and seek and knock. Here's what the Greek is actually saying. Asking. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. And so the lesson through that is that there needs to be a consistency of prayer. So in prayers, we're going to be persistent, bold, shameless, come before God. We're going to just bring it all. And then there needs to be consistency. And I'm not talking about consistency when we gather with our family before we eat a meal. I consistently pray before lunch and dinner. No, that's not... That's not it at all. It's, we need to be consistent in all of our prayer about what we're praying about. What we want to see God doing. And the implication there is that we keep praying about it until receive, we receive the answer. It would be kind of silly if I were to come up to you and ask you a question and then walk off. And not get the answer. It would be silly... If we were at our house, and I know sometimes we lose our keys and our wallets and stuff like that, we forget where we put them down, even though that's, I'll never forget it's there. It'd be silly for us to seek after things 
that we know are there and then just stop. To seek after something we, we know we need, I'm like, meh. And that's not how you play hide and seek, is it? You seek after those who are hiding to find them. So we seek after the answer, even though it doesn't mean it may be the answer we want, but we seek after it. And it'd be silly of me to go to your house knowing that you're home. Oh, okay, I guess. That makes no sense. It'd be ridiculous to knock once and then walk off. When Richard, I go and pick up kids, he bangs on the door like three or four times, repeatedly. And so we keep knocking, we keep seeking, we keep asking. When I was in middle school, in early part of high school, I, I consistently prayed for two things. We moved to Illinois when I was going to start eighth grade. So one of my consistent prayers was, Lord, please give me friends. Because I didn't know anybody. Newtown, we moved in the summer. Lord, I want some friends. High school, all my buddies started getting girlfriends. I said, Lord, give me a girlfriend. I didn't even have a girl in mind. I just said, you know, bring one. You know, they're out, they're out there somewhere. You'll bring it. <laughs> when I got to SBU, I finally got consistent about praying for my direction in life. God, what do you want me to do? I've got this plan. What do you want me to do? And that led me to the ministry. When Jamie arrived the next year, I consistently and persistently prayed that God would give her the direction for her life. Open her eyes, Lord. Let her know it's me. I'm Mr. Wonderful for her. When God started calling us to Harvest Till, Jamie and I consistently and persistently prayed for him, Lord, either open that door or shut it. Because we want to be completely in your will. And we want to be doing what you want to have happen. And here's some lessons I learned for that. <laughs> some things I consistently prayed for ended up being good things. Got into the ministry. Has everything always been good in the ministry? No. But the ministry's been good. Obviously, Jamie was a good thing. Coming here to be the pastor at Harvest Hill, it's been a good thing. But some of those things I was consistently and persistently praying for led to trouble. I prayed for friends, but I didn't pray for godly friends. I just prayed really wanting people to accept me and like me. I prayed for a girlfriend, but I didn't pray for a godly relationship. I didn't pray for it to be in God's time. And through those friendships and those relationships, bad things happen. But you live and you learn. And sometimes God has to allow us to go down that road so we live and we learn. And so what I learned through that is I need to be precise in what I'm praying about. I'm not just throwing something up in the air hoping, you know, it hits. But be precise. And God will either open and shut the door. He'll either say yes or no, but no is still an answer. 
The promise of this sort of prayer is found in verse 10. It says, For everyone keeps asking, receives. And the one who keeps seeking, finds. And the one who keeps knocking, it will be opened. And then Jesus goes on and shares a little bit more in the final verses. But it helps us to understand the promise of prayer. Not only in verse 10, but verses 11 through 13. And again, Jesus is not telling us, you know, if you pray this way, it's going to work out every time the way you want it to. You did everything you ever prayed for. He's saying when we pray this way, we will get the answer according to the will of God. Romans tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. A.W. Tozier wrote that when God promises to hear your prayers, it does not mean he makes an unconditional promise to answer them the way you want them answered. But with that passage from Romans, we know however he answers, it is going to be for our good. And according to his purpose, his good will. Now we come here in verses 11 through 12 to understand the fish and the egg thing that's going on. We have to again understand Jewish culture. Fish and an egg were deemed clean, therefore edible, so they were good. The serpent and scorpion were deemed unclean, so they were bad. And Jesus uses these two things to bring it to verse 13. When he brings up the point that, you know, if you are who are evil, if you who are sinful, if you who wrestle in your sin know how to give good gifts to your children, then you can understand that God is going to give you the greatest gift ever. And we'll get to that final part here in a second. But I think we'd all understand if we've got kids and grandkids that we know how to give good gifts to them. When our kids come up with their birthday list or their Christmas list, you know, Jamie and I look at it and we try to do our very best to do it, unless it's something outlandish and then we pass it on to the grandparents, right? But Jesus comes to this point where he says, you know, if you who are evil know how to give good, give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so Jesus, in this moment, when he's talking about prayer, he's saying, here's what the ultimate gift is. Here's what your ultimate need is. We don't need more stuff. We need more filling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. And then the Spirit of God pouring out of us is the greatest gift. When the Spirit of God dwells inside of you because you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that means God has sealed you for eternity. He has claimed you as his child. He has claimed you as his own. And then when the Spirit pours out of us because we're filled with the Spirit, we're filled with the presence of God, what that means is that we are now impacting people and we are impacting the world for the kingdom of God, which is what we've been commanded and commissioned to do. We need the Holy Spirit not only to pray, the Bible says we need the Holy Spirit to intercede on our behalf. 
Bible says we actually need the Holy Spirit to give us the words to pray. To give us wisdom on how to pray. To give us wisdom on what to pray about. And we need the Holy Spirit to give us the power to pray. I want to jump back to verse 2 real quick. Beginning this teaching on prayer, Jesus begins with the focus and a name of God, Father. And I said this already, but if you tune me out, come back in. You cannot pray to God the Father if Jesus is not your Savior. You can't. But God the Father loves you so much he brought you to this place to adopt you as his child. And this is why we call it good news, also referred to as the gospel. God created you for a relationship with him. And it's your sin that is separating you from that relationship. And you can't do enough good things to remove your sin problem. But that's why God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for your sins and mine, and then rise from the grave to give us forgiveness and grant us eternal life and allow us to be adopted as children of God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know if you have that relationship with God, if you don't know if you can refer to him as your father, we're coming to this time of invitation And Nick's going to come down and lead us. And I'm just going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to be a child of God. I want to know I'm going to heaven when this life is over. And I'll pray with you, celebrate with you, and I guarantee you there will not be a brother or sister in Christ in this room that won't join in the celebration with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us this incredible tool of prayer. We can come before you, almighty God, the holy of holies. We can enter into your throne room of grace. And we can have fellowship with you. We can talk with you and we can listen to your voice. You are the great provider, the good shepherd, the Alpha and Omega. And I pray your kingdom and will be done this time of response and invitation. Lord, let us be a people of prayer. Because when we look in your word, we see when people prayed, you moved. And people's lives were changed. And so we thank you for that. Pray your kingdom and will continue to be done. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.